0: and welcome to the Amplifying Scientific Innovation video podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sophia Onoye Onoye, founder and CEO of the Sophia Consulting Firm, a life science marketing and communications consultancy that was established in New York City with the goal of amplifying scientific innovation. The goal of this podcast is to showcase scientific innovation stemming from global life science companies through conversations with senior leaders who share their unique leadership journey Corporate vision and industry outlook. My guest today is Mr. Craig Lipset, an advisor and founder of Clinical Innovation Partners and former head of clinical innovation at Pfizer. Craig is a recognized leader at the forefront of innovation in clinical development. He's an advisor to technology and biopharmaceutical companies, leading universities, and the venture community bringing vision and driving action at the intersection of research, digital solutions and patient engagement. Craig currently serves on the board of directors for the foundation for psychodosis research and the MedStar Health Research Institute and is an adjunct professor at two universities, Rutgers University and University of Rochester. Craig has received the Red Jacket Hall of Fame recognition among the PharmaVoice Voice most inspiring people in the life sciences. He studied music at Brandeis University and earned a Master of Public Health from Columbia. Craig and I met at the 2019 Fonda Rex meeting and remained connected based on our shared interest in entrepreneurship and clinical trial innovation. Welcome to the show, Craig.
1: Thank you so much, Sophia. It's great to see you again.
0: (laughs) Same here. The pleasure is mine. So I always start the show the same way. And and we're going to do it exactly the same way today. So I would love to hear from you. What is your definition of scientific innovation?
1: My definition of innovation for, uh, from my time at Pfizer and beyond has, has always been pretty consistent. I think about innovation as an idea from which we derive value. Now, the reason I've used that definition for years mm-hmm. is really to separate out this, idea, this ideation phase from the importance and almost the necessity of being able to show the impact of that idea. You now my role around scientific innovation has always been around clinical trials, the process of, of drug development, and it's very easy to come up with ideas in mm-hmm. that space. But for me, that definition of innovation is the dependency to be able to take that idea mm-hmm. and show some demonstrable impact. In many ways, that definition for me mm-hmm. means you can almost only tell an innovation in hindsight because Mm -hmm. you were able to show some impact from it. But it's really important to me to separate out just the ideation phase from, uh, and and for something to really be innovative, you really need to have both the idea, but also Mm -hmm. the ability to execute.
0: I love that sort of retroactive piece where you don't actually know something is innovative until after you've achieved some level of impact. And for our field, of course, we're going to measure that in terms of patients, right? How can we improve quality of life for patients? So so thank you for sharing that definition. Now, you've had quite a a great career, and we could probably spend two hours just talking about that. But what I would love for you to do, if possible, is to discuss what you think is your most important impactful professional accomplishment prior to your current role as the advisor and founder of Clinical Innovation Partners?
1: You know, I I think back on the years that I was advisor and leading clinical innovation there, and certainly one of the most impactful pieces of work was about 10, 12 years ago when I had the opportunity to help design and execute the industry's first fully remote at-home clinical trial. Mm. Now, over the course of the last decade, there's been a lot of interest in that area. Over the last four or five years, we've seen a substantial amount of venture investment, a substantial amount of experimentation taking place in large pharma companies. But obviously, 2020 has been very disruptive in the process of clinical trials and drug development. And so if we were to take that definition of innovation that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. think about both the idea and showing the impact, it's a long tail to it. But certainly the impact of being able to run our trials with flexibility for locations is one of the top two countermeasures we relied on this year to keep clinical trials running.
0: I think that that is powerful because to your point, I think COVID has really unraveled the importance of decentralized clinical trials. And for you to have played such a pivotal role in in sort of helping the the public to understand the value and the impact of, of remote clinical trials is something that I'm personally proud of you for doing, and I'm sure that you're proud of it yourself. (laughs) Okay, so my next question for you is more out of curiosity than anything. Uh, Every entrepreneur has a story, and I would love to know what inspired your entrepreneurial journey in clinical trial innovation, and how does your current experience differ from your previous role as the head of clinical uh, innovation at Pfizer?
1: My journey um, leading up to my time at Pfizer was one of somebody who always enjoyed and was fascinated by the process of clinical trials and drug development, such a, a vital and so ex- such an expensive proposition. We're dependent on it for generating an understanding of evidence and safety of new medicines, and yet it's such a laborious time and person intensive process that spans so many years. But that sort of got amplified with my own journey as a patient, mm. uh, where a, a little over a decade ago, I um, I was diagnosed as a as a person with pulmonary sarcoidosis, and that journey oh. of understanding my own health data, of um, of managing my data, and knowing the importance of having my health data as a part of my journey, and really my 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 own story inside of Pfizer was one of bringing together those two aspects of my own life. One as a clinical trialist and drug developer and another as a data-enabled patient. And the initiatives that I brought to life inside of Pfizer really focused on the intersection of those two. My journey inside of Pfizer was fabulous. I, I worked with amazing people and we were able to get some incredible things done. But one individual should not run an innovation discipline as a lifetime appointment. There's a certain necessary freshness that's required inside of an organization. And to be honest, I didn't see other career paths that excited me inside of a, uh, a large life sciences company. Granted, there are amazing career paths for lots of people inside of a company that large, but my passion was again on this process of clinical trials and drug development. So when I left Pfizer, I knew that I enjoyed this diversity of challenges and problems around clinical trials and drug development. I had this opportunity at Pfizer to work on so many. I didn't feel ready to jump into just addressing one challenge. And so found really through my community on LinkedIn, this, this unmet need, this opportunity, where so many different organizations were looking for help, help that I felt in a position to be able to offer. And that was really the birth of an advisory practice that has fortunately grown and flourished this year and given me the opportunity to keep doing a lot of the things I was doing at Pfizer, working with so many different organizations, but all around this specific challenge of clinical trials and drug development. Of course, one of the things I've been really fortunate to be able to do over this last year and a half is work with some incredible individuals and incredible teams as partners. And I feel very fortunate to have had that opportunity.
0: Well, thank you for sharing your your personal story. I think that I've always fundamentally believed that we're all patients. And once we sort of discover that piece within ourselves, it helps us to evolve our thinking and to seek opportunities that challenge us beyond our status quo. Um, And also thank you for emphasizing the power of LinkedIn. I cannot sort of say enough how how much of a value that has been for me as well in my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, But, you know, you you sort of alluded to some of the work that you've been doing um, as an entrepreneur, but I'll be curious to see if you could provide a top line overview of the work that you're currently doing at Clinical Innovation Partners.
1: Today, I'm working with organizations that wanna bring some innovative new approach or technology forward to improve how we conduct clinical trials and medicine development. And the stakeholders that I'm working with to realize that vision include a mix of pharma and biotech companies directly I'm working with them on their transformation of their development organizations, or helping to prioritize different opportunities to change how they're developing medicines across the portfolio. Increasingly today, as you can imagine, a lot of that focus is on decentralizing their portfolio and making that a stable part of their business. I work extensively with the venture community that's looking to support innovations in that category, working with them on deal flow and diligence and then working extensively with technology companies from pre-revenue and growth, all the way to established health tech companies that are looking to diversify their revenue into life sciences and clinical research. And together we work on uh, their product, on their go-to-market and their story to make sure that they know what problem they're really looking to address and how we can actually help to make that connection between the many challenges in drug development and some of the great innovations that are out there along the way, as you mentioned at the outset, also working with a number of fabulous advocacy organizations and leaders, as well as several hospitals and health systems.
0: That is wonderful. I'm sure that you find your work incredibly rewarding. Um, And I'm curious to know now about your leadership mantra and how you've leveraged it to advance something that is incredibly important to me and I'm sure it's important to you as well, which is this whole concept of clinical trial diversity. especially as we think about the multitude of companies that you support in an advisory role, how do you tie those two pieces together, your leadership mantra and how to advance clinical trial diversity?
1: I think in terms of leadership, Throughout the different organizations where I've operated, we tend to spend a lot of time working together on thoughtful Mm. risk-taking. The clinical Mm. research space brought with extensive regulations as well as very important safety processes and oversight, and at times it has made people fear taking risk and to Mm. feel like we're trapped in certain legacy processes. 2020 is a year that certainly amplifies what thoughtful risk taking means because when Hmm. the environment changed when we had risk in the environment, Mm -hmm. risk of people could not get to the clinic, that physicians couldn't open their clinics for patients to come in to participate in studies that all of a sudden when that risk dynamic changed, people needed to embrace some of these strategies. But how do we sustain that type of thoughtful risk-taking? I Also spend time with different organizations thinking about failure and how mm-hmm. failure has to be a, a part of our innovation narrative. If as one of my mentors many years ago had told me, if everything we're doing succeeded, then we're not really trying hard enough when right. it comes to dis- and innovation. Now the intersection there with stimulating and driving diversity is a challenging one. Diversity in our organizations that are supporting clinical research, diversity in our investigator community, and of course diversity and representation then in the patients that we're engaging as participants in our research studies. And that latter part has been a persistent challenge for a very long time and while so many people have gotten motivated and inspired to take action this year around diversity, I think my fear here is that people will focus on short term quick wins and right. in fact, it's such a longstanding problem that it really requires longstanding commitment. So take that same story we were just sharing mm. around the importance of acknowledging failure. Mm. I think that this is an area where we have to try different opportunities, but also accept that many of them will not work. And that doesn't mean that we can walk away from our commitment to diversity. My biggest fear in this area is that people will try quick wins, mm-hmm. get frustrated, and move on to challenges because there are so many other challenges out there. You know, Sophia. Earlier this year, I had an opportunity to uh, to interview on a in a conference um, uh, uh, David Lacks and uh, Veronica Robinson, who are the grandson and great granddaughter of Henrietta Lax. And in spending time with with them in that interview, it was so clear to me how. Henrietta Lacks' children were angry and frustrated at the lack of transparency, but then you meet David, the grandson, and he is a uh, he's an advocate for research, working with the NIH. And you meet their great granddaughter, and she's studying to be a nurse. And you start to see that this is a generational process, yeah. right, to try to recover trust. It took generations to lose trust in the first place, and it's something that really will require a long-term commitment to bring back.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, and and obviously for me, I used to be a cancer researcher, and I, I worked with the healer cells in the lab myself, and I think it was at the time I started to uncover some of the issues sort of with clinical trial diversity itself, because it's almost a two-sided problem. One is on the part of the sponsors, um, CROs, I, uh, pharmaceutical companies, to identify the need for more inclusion. But then on the other side, for the African-American community in particular, it's how do you build trust? When you think about the Henrietta Lacks debacle, you think about the syphilis trials in the past, what can we do to build that trust? And, and I think education is going to play such an important part of that. And that's why I'm grateful to people like yourself for participating in panels, for having one-on-one discussions, for speaking at conferences, for really amplifying that need. But it comes from what you said earlier, You know, how do we understand thoughtful risk-taking? How do we acknowledge failure? And, and then identify new ways to educate and to inform. So thank you for sharing that.
1: And it speaks to the importance of what you're doing here in terms of bringing both expertise and depth of knowledge as well as empathy and stimulating these important conversations to challenge people to rethink how they're doing their own business Mm -hmm. but also to tell their stories share their stories to not just inspire others, but to raise awareness to others of these challenges um, and the importance of, of, um, of committing, committing to the change here. So thank you.
0: Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, it's just such a delight speaking with you already. Um, but, you know, as we think about these issues and, and some of the approaches that we're, we're thinking of, not just here on this platform, but elsewhere, how sustainable do you think the changes that are being implemented to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on, on clinical trials and, and drug access? I feel like it's maybe something people might talk about now, but I wonder, is it going to still be an issue five years, 10 years down the line? What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Great question, because some substantial shifts had to be taken this year to mitigate the risk and continue the development of, you know, not just COVID therapeutics and COVID related vaccines, but the entire world's medicine development portfolio across therapeutic areas was in jeopardy of grinding to a halt. When patients couldn't leave their homes and when mm-hmm. providers were not able to open their research sites or had to be diverted to other urgent public health matters in the community. And so there were a number of countermeasures that the research community embraced. And what's important to remember here is these countermeasures didn't have to be invented. Mm-hmm. These were tools and approaches mm-hmm. that already existed which mm-hmm. struggled for adoption into research programs. Some of them shifted how we monitored for our studies in terms of what our monitoring for safety would look like. Some of them shifted the location for participation, enabling patients to participate from home using home health, visiting nurses, remote diagnostics, Mm. enabling patients to get access to study medication shipped to their homes or using more local labs and more local imaging centers when they're in their studies, all to mitigate the the challenges of traveling in the year 2020. But this Mm -hmm. challenge of patient burden of participation wasn't new. And so exactly to your point, how do we sustain those silver Mm -hmm. lining, these things Mm -hmm. that actually work? And they see a lot of people will post online that mm-hmm. this is the normal for X or Y, for clinical research or clinical trials. It's not the new normal just because we did things differently for a mm-hmm. few months.
0: Exactly. In this case,
1: mm-hmm. SOP waivers and protocol mm-hmm. deviations, all of which imply they're temporary, not even imply, the word deviation and waiver just is is explicit. It's a temporary change that we made. And so now is the time to see organizations truly commit to these changes. And what does commitment mean? Well, the leaders inside of life sciences companies knows, they, we know what it means to commit to change. We've, right. we've made other changes in our organizations. If we change our a, a significant enterprise technology that's used for clinical research, we would go hire a big consulting firm and we'd have a dozen dedicated FTEs and uh, a budget that's explicit to manage that change. We'd have a date and we'd say on December 31st, we change from the old way to the new. And if January 1st comes and the change didn't happen, <laughs> somebody is held accountable, right? Yeah. There's a commitment we make and we know what that means. And mm-hmm. so just saying we've done it for a few months is not a commitment. Um right. what I'm starting to see, is a number of large pharma companies really making that commitment now where they're yeah. putting FTEs and giving them budget and support to change their processes, expand their partnering uh, that they, uh, in organizations that they work with and to rethink how they're writing their protocols going forward. Uh, it takes work, but I'm starting to see some of the signs that people are really committing and that's exciting.
0: Right. Now, I mean, that is so well- that I don't even have anything else to add to that. I, I just think to your point, sustainability is something that we can only measure in the months to come and we can only emphasize it through discussions like this because if we stop having the discussions, if we stop making it a priority, then of course people are going to shift on to other priorities. So I do think that... Oh, I know for myself personally, this whole topic on clinical trial diversity, for example, is not one that is going to go away for me anytime soon. And the fact that African Americans are less than one in four of clinical trial participants for pharma-sponsored trials for, for cancers, it's really sad, especially when we know the disease burden, um, the mortality rate, the incidence rate that African Americans have related to white Americans, for example. So I, I think there's a lot to be done, but it takes action and it takes people that are committed to, to thoughtful risk-taking and holding ourselves accountable. So thank you.
1: This is an exciting time for us to make yeah. commitments around, well, I'll put it this way, making sure that we're taking advantage of this moment in history to encourage organizations to make long-term commitments around diversity, putting FTEs and resources in place Mm -hmm. that truly own and are responsible for driving that diversity um, and amplifying policies that can Mm -hmm. help make this uh, commitment sustaining. Be ambitious and let's think about things that maybe have worked in other areas that we can start to bring into this challenge. One example that I I, have thought a lot about in in recent months, when we've aspired to make change happen in rare disease research and encourage investment when it was underrepresented, when we wanted more research Mm -hmm. supporting pediatric Mm -hmm. drug development, we were able to do that by creating incentive structures through policymakers for the FDA and others to be able to incentivize Mm -hmm. research in these areas. And perhaps it's solutions such as those having pathways where the regulators themselves can be partners in helping to create an incentive structure for drug developers that power their studies to show efficacy and safety in Mm -hmm. diverse patient populations. an incentive structure like that in place we've seen that it works just look at the rare disease medicine development portfolio that we have today it's largely been catalyzed by incentives like those
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think that that is such a, a good idea because to your point, we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. There are so many solutions out there. It's just about applying it in a way that is sustainable. So um, I'm glad that we're really on the same page uh, on this. And, and hopefully, again, we'll continue to unravel um, ways that we can continue the conversation and sustain the interest in clinical trial diversity, clinical innovation, and just finding new ways to connect beyond you know covid Um, So my next question for you, um, and I'm very curious to know what your answer is, by the way, because I have no no clue. Um, Do you have any company or technology that you're currently excited about, especially as as it relates to cancer clinical trial recruitment, monitoring, and data analysis? And if so, why? So it could be a technology, it could be a company. I'm just just curious to know more.
1: There is... um... A technology that I'll call out here.
0: Okay.
1: It's actually something I talked about way back in 2015. I did a TEDx talk on this topic. But like a lot of topics that you might have spoken about five years ago, the world (laughs) has evolved, and in this case, it's evolved in the right direction. And the the technology that I'm most excited about is the technology that I'll call the data-enabled patient. Mm. Because what we find Mm. is... When Hmm. individual patients have more access and control over their own Hmm. health data, personal health data, electronic health record data, diagnostic data, and so on, when patients have access and control over their data, we consistently see over 9 out of 10 are willing to share that data to support research. And we know that researchers are voracious for data. The only caveat is when patients are given that ability to share their data to support research, they want to do it on their own terms. And so Mm. privacy and Mm. personal preferences
0: are Mm -hmm. paramount.
1: And what we're starting to see are more and more data platforms emerging that help to empower patients with access and control over their own health data. Some of these platforms use a HIPAA right of access platforms mm-hmm. in that case like Citizen or others. Some of these platforms link to patient portals or other data sources. And there there are names of companies like Picnic Health and Backpack mm-hmm. and Seekster mm-hmm. and Hugo. Mm-hmm. But exciting also as well, we see right now that policy initiatives are not only keeping pace but helping to amplify this potential um, mm-hmm. under the Past administration, we had the Blue Button project, which helped to give patients more access to their data. And in the current um, HHS, we've seen initiatives recently announced that amplify that work. Which is really exciting considering there are very few things from the past administration to the current that yeah. feel like they were sustained.
0: <laughs> Ensuring yeah.
1: that patients have access to data is truly mm-hmm. a bipartisan opportunity. And we see as recently as last week. Health and Human Services was announcing their new open data API, which means yes. a data structuring norm that makes sure that you and I and all patients, when we have data scattered across different health systems, that we can access it in a consistent way. I think that all researchers and all research advocates need to become champions for data-enabled patients.
0: Hmm. Patients hmm.
1: have that access. we can They can come with more data to screen into different trials and help mm-hmm. see with more confidence mm-hmm. what studies are appropriate for them. They can bring that data into their prospective clinical trials with their permission and inclusion to help catalyze precision medicine, to help enable long-term safety follow-up, to help us understand. While some patients are responding and some may have a safety event, the possibilities are limitless for accelerating research when we have that ecosystem.
0: I'm just blown away. This whole concept of data-enabled patients, it's literally, you have your the power at your fingertips. And, and I think by empowering patients, we are empowering the robustness of the data that we receive and the robustness in itself is going to inform how we treat Patients, but not just the treatment but also the diagnostics as well. So that is so well put and I and I love your focus on a technology piece versus companies because obviously many companies might sort of apply the same rationale in terms of their approach, but the underlying um, concept here is how do we empower patients by educating them on what it means to be a data enabled patient. So, so thank you for that.
1: Inventors in that space, and there will be more than one. Will be the ones that make it easy for patients, and the ones that maintain trust through transparency. My data shouldn't be used in places without right. my knowledge. And if we right. think back to the lessons learned from the earlier conversation with Henrietta Lacks and the HeLa cells, people used HeLa cells with good intent mm-hmm. to advance research. They didn't do it though with respect for the source in -hmm. terms of transparency and inclusion. And we can't fall into that trap in the year 2020-2021 around how we're using people's personal health data. We're using it for good purpose to advance research. These platforms let us do that in a way that's permissioned, transparent, and inclusive and keep us from falling into repeating in the digital era, the tragedy of the Henrietta Lacks uh, story.
0: Yeah, I, again, I, I completely agree with you. And you know, when I think about the future of the industry and how we can sustain innovation, I do believe that data-enabled patients and, and maintaining boundaries in terms of transparency and data sharing are going to be critical for, for sustaining that innovation. I'll be curious to know if you have any other thoughts, any other ideas on, on what those key consideration factors will be for sustaining innovation in our industry.
1: I think as we think about sustaining innovation, I think we need people to appreciate that innovation is not about the sexy and the cool new things. I think that sometimes people get lost with the ideas and they get excited about things that are glitzy and sexy and they think that the people (laughs) who are working on innovation are just working on what's cool Mm -hmm. instead in order for this to really be sustaining people have to appreciate that innovation is work around change work around change management and commitment it has to pull through from a cool idea into the hard work of execution. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's when we'll see sustaining innovation. Mm-hmm. It's rolling up your sleeves and it gets dirty and it gets hard, but that's the, that's the part that's going to make this really impactful and give us the confidence to do even more
0: yeah i i agree with you people often like the big shiny object oh it's new it's shiny let's go for it but to your point a lot of what we need to sort of sustain innovation we already have it we just have to find ways to build trust between sort of pharmaceutical companies and patients uh in in, partner with technology companies, I think there's so much that we could learn from Google. And I, I love the the recent collaboration last year between I think it was Microsoft and Novartis. So we're seeing a lot of intersection between uh, technology and and life science companies. And you know so much about that. That's that's sort of what you do every day.
1: Yeah, there's some great collaborations in the spirit of that one with Microsoft and Novartis had this spirit of citizen data scientists and how do we empower everybody at their desks to become a data scientist. But even before that, there was um, Google's Verily unit or the Alphabet unit under uh, a sister company to Google had a collaboration that included, again, Novartis as well as Pfizer, Sanofi and Otsuka. Um, So I think there are a lot of interesting examples, to your point, of life sciences companies that are trying to partner in fresh ways. And then many times, to me, it's not just about partnering for cool technology Mm -hmm. that those companies have, but how can you learn from their culture? And Mm -hmm. back to what we said earlier, Mm -hmm. that culture of thoughtful risk-taking and Mm -hmm. being more nimble and agile in how we approach things.
0: Well, Craig, thank you so much for such a um, refreshing discussion. I I knew that you and I had a lot in common prior to our discussion today, but all today has done is to reinforce that. other commentary or thoughts that you'd like to share?
1: I think if I, uh, if I were to give sort of a concluding perspective, it would just be to double down on two themes on mm. people's willingness to support change in their organization and make these commitments, as well as making sure that all of our organizations become spokespersons and champions to ensure that patients across the world have consistent access and control over their personal health data. Because as researchers, the more we can do that, not just in the US, but on a global basis, um, the better we will all be, both when we are patients, as you said earlier, but also as researchers and bringing those new medicines through. Thanks so much for letting me join you here today and thank you for keeping these conversations going.
0: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for emphasizing the global piece. As you know, I'm Nigerian-American and I'm always thinking about what we can do to also make sure that patients all over the world are not left behind. So I appreciate your thoughtfulness, your intelligence and, and your contribution to that amplifying scientific innovation platform. So thank you, Craig. I look forward to staying in touch. You too.